Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 312. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 312 you're listening to. My guest today is Jesse Cannon. Jesse is a man who covers a lot of territory. He produces, engineers, mixes, masters. He hosts podcasts. He's an author. He's the host of a YouTube channel. He teaches. Uh, I'm probably leaving something out. He does a lot of stuff, and he comes to us as a recommendation from our good friend, former WCA guest Steve Evitz, and I'm really excited to have him on. We had a great conversation the other day, and I'm looking forward to you hearing that conversation. So very much looking forward to Jesse Cannon coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about paying it forward. A quick story to uh, set this up. I was going through a drive-thru, a McDonald's drive-thru in particular, and I got up to the window where you're supposed to pay. And generally, after you pay, they give you your receipt. Well, I drove up to the window, and the woman at the window was already handing me the receipt. And I hadn't paid yet, and I was highly confused. And, and I said, I don't understand. And she said, aren't you with the people in front of you? And I said, no. And she said, well, they just paid for your food. And I was like, what? Oh, okay. Oh, right. And I quickly, I realized what was going on. It was a pay it forward kind of a moment. And uh, it was the week of Thanksgiving, so, you know, maybe somebody was uh, feeling like doing something nice for somebody anonymously, and uh, that was great. And I didn't have my wits about me, unfortunately, because if I did, I would have paid for the food for the person behind me and paid it forward, of course. So the following week, when I found myself at a McDonald's drive through once again, uh, with my son doing our little Saturday breakfast run, we bought the food for the people behind us. And I bet they were just as confused as we were a week prior. All right, so why am I bringing this up? What's What does this have to do with working class audio? Well, in this particular case, it is, you know, the holiday season. I don't necessarily equate this to just doing nice things during the holidays. You should try to practice these paying it forward moments in every month, in every time of year. So here's a thought for you as I bring this pay it forward thing into the world of working class audio. Buying stuff for yourself, I know that all of you experience the rush that, oh, I got something new. I got a new plug-in. I got a new whatever it is, a microphone. The other side of that, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, is the thrill you get from giving something to somebody. And it doesn't have to be a gift. It can just be like a, hey, uh, here's a record I think you might like. Here's a book I think you might like. Here's a microphone that I no longer use that I think you could get some use out of. Why don't you take it? Or here's an old reverb unit I've had sitting around forever. Why don't you take it and see what you can do with it? Or if you know somebody that you'd like to give it to and gift it to, do it. So I know many of you were going, well, wait a minute. I I thought you said all that gear that we have sitting around we should sell. And yes, you should. If you've got tons of gear sitting around and it's been, what, six months, a year, sell it. 
I just sold my NS10s after many, many years. They, they sat around, I tried to sell them forever, and finally I sold them and they're gone. And that's a great thrill. But what's also a great thrill and is something I've done in the past is taking gear that I'm not using and giving it to somebody, whether it's a school or, a, um, or an individual that you know might need a little help. Maybe, maybe it's a local studio that you know is trying to get uh, things up and running. That's a that's a possibility. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big presentation and pat yourself on the back moment here. I'm just talking about doing something nice for somebody. You don't even have to get recognition because the excitement comes in two ways. One, the thrill of giving and knowing that you've done something cool for somebody. And second, the thrill of knowing the enjoyment that they possibly are getting, whether you see that enjoyment on their face or not. You know, in the case of an anonymous thing, you're not going to see it, but... Picture in your head the thrill that someone's getting from you giving them something cool. Now, go through your record collection. Maybe there's some records in there that you're like, eh, I haven't listened to this in like 10 years. I really don't listen to this. So I've got it on CD or I've, I stream it or whatever. You know, while it's great to sell records, send somebody a record anonymously, you know? Uh, so hopefully somebody that you know that has a turntable. Send them a book. It doesn't always have to be a birthday or anything like that. Just doing something nice for somebody. People have done that for me a number of times over the years. Whenever possible, I try to pay that forward. And this McDonald's episode really reminded me, hey, it's been a while. You really need to do some giving the, to help some folks out. So yeah, that's it. It's uh, Like I said, it's the holiday season as I record this. Don't use that as the only excuse to do it. Try this throughout the year, you know? Maybe it's uh, one day a month, you find something that you have that you think somebody might enjoy that you could you know, do without. And that's also one way to kind of trim your belongings down so you don't have so much crap to keep track of and, and ensure. You know, go through your record collection, book collection, and if you have nothing to give in that department, maybe you go online or go to your local bookstore, buy somebody a book, mail it to them, or call the bookstore and say, hey, here's my credit card. I'd like, to, like you to send this book to this person. Um, it could be one of your favorite books. You know, it could be a book on recording, a book, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't really uh, matter. Just come up with something that, that is important to you, that you think is fun to give, something useful. Do something cool, something that somebody will go, wow, who sent me this? And just bring a smile to their face. And, you know, maybe sometime in the future, a few years down the road, maybe you're in the same room with that person and you know them and they're telling the story. You know, hey, somebody anonymously sent me this thing. You know, you can just kick back and smile and not even say a word. Just kind of realize that that was you and that was kind of cool. And it's nice to see uh, somebody in your life smiling and happy over something like that. So, uh, yeah, pay it forward. Think about it. That's my rant. I appreciate you listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jesse Cannon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Been listening for years, so I'm really psyched to be on. Well, and you seem to be uh, well-versed in the art of diversification, so I'm super <laughs> excited to have you on. And also, we have to thank our mutual friend, Steve Evitz, for bringing you to the fold. He recommended you as soon as we wrapped up his interview, and so... You know, I always love a good recommendation and a good referral. So welcome to you. And let's get started with, where did you grow up? So I grew up right outside New York City in Montclair, New Jersey, which is like a super artsy suburb. The joke is, is it's like the first place with trees and art once you get outside of New York. <laughs> there was a very thriving punk scene in New Jersey. Ironically, a lot of it being recorded by Steve. And I grew up and Steve was my favorite producer. So I got a four-track at 15 and started recording local bands in exchange for Snapple and Doritos. And when I got a little older, beer. You progressed from Snapple to beer? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. One of which I haven't touched in decades. That being the Snapple. <laughs> yeah, I did that. And then eventually, I kind of was that person who took any job anybody would give me. I worked at the local punk record store. I worked at the local club that did punk shows. And like my joke about that was I worked there from 17 to 20. And 
They paid me minimally for doing sound and promoting shows, but they gave me free alcohol, even though I was never of age one day that I worked there, which was something. (laughs) And then I also got really lucky because Montclair was next to East Orange, which was home to the esteemed radio station WFMU. And at 16 years old, I was doing sound at a show, and a bunch of the staff at WFMU came up and said, hey, this sounds really good. Would you like to volunteer at a radio station that doesn't pay and record bands all day? And so I was like, well, that's all I want to do. And I'd be recording the magnetic fields and like all these crazy big indie bands when I'm not even 18 yet and just embarrassing myself with my ignorance. But also just learning a ton. And I eventually got the choice between finishing high school and recording somebody I was really excited about at WFMU, and I chose recording. And I got a GED. And I stayed at FMU for 10 years. And then from there, I just started getting local punk bands who would ask me to do records here and there. Tell me that in that 10 years, they started paying you. Well, WFMU is all volunteer because it's nonprofit. Oh, okay. So they didn't pay you. They're the largest freeform radio station, so everybody who's there is a labor of love, which is awesome, and it makes it such a cool community because you have to really, really love music to be doing it. But eventually, like, after, yeah, 10 years, like, it got to be the point that when I would look at how much money I lost going there, and then my girlfriend would look at that money, it became a thing that I couldn't do anymore. From there, I worked at a label called Go-Kart Records because I kept saying yes to just anything somebody could do, but then they hired me to do publicity, and I had not yet learned that I'm a really introverted person, and publicity is the wrong job for anybody who's introverted, and I went away for the weekend and recorded my own band at the famed studio that no longer exists, uh, Water Music, which was this amazing, amazing place in Hoboken, New Jersey. I came back, I was like, I got to leave this job, like, right away. (laughs) I was lucky enough that my boss was really nice, and he put me in touch with Alan Douches, the mastering engineer, and I got a job with Alan recording bands and being his assistant for mastering, which I did for a couple years, and I got to meet a million different cool musicians in that time and get to work on tons of records. We had a tape machine and one of the first Pro Tools. This is 1999, so there was very few Pro Tools systems, and my joke was I'd be a rebellious teenager, I'd turn to my dad and I'd say, I'm never going to work in front of a fucking computer like you all day, man. And then I I saw Pro Tools and I changed my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Then you pulled your foot out of your mouth. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And him and I laugh about this still to this day, about how often I'd say that. But, you know, I thought I'd be cutting tape all my life. And then things changed and I got a lot of jobs because I learned how to do drum edits when no one knew how to do that. And that made me very valuable to some of the bigger producers we'd be mastering for. And that's how I met Steve Evitz. And I did a ton of work under Steve doing Pro Tools and assisting him. And then he brought me to work with Ross Robinson with him. Oh, wow. I got to do The Cure, Limp Biscuit, and a handful of other things with Ross. And then since then, I went out on my own. And that was my early first round of career story. I mean, I had some really good success in that time. And yeah, that was like my early days. What are some of the takeaways from the early part of your career? What are the true lessons that you carry with you to this day? I think there was like three stages is the one thing 
was that I would be at West West Side working under Alan, whether he paid me or not. Like Alan's joke was that 45 minutes early was 15 minutes late for me. And let me say this. I, part of why I also didn't graduate high school was I could not wake up. And then all of a sudden I got that urge to wake up. I wanted to be there. I'd read the manual every second. I couldn't be doing something more interesting of every manual he had. Even if it was a piece of gear that he had sold, if the manual hadn't come with the sale, I was reading the manual and trying to get it. But my takeaway there was like, I wanted that. But the other thing I learned was that Alan was so personal and his wife, Rose, were just the nicest people. And then I also met Jay Robbins there. Oh, from Jawbox, right? Yeah, yeah. And I should also say, Drawbox was my favorite band at 14, so I meet Jay, and I'm, like, scared shitless. Because this is, like, one of the most important people in my music, that he's the nicest, giving, will answer every question with the biggest smile, even though I'm asking him the dumbest things, like how to mic a snare and things like that. But I learned, like, that's what you do, is you give to the next generation, and that becomes a big part of my next round of my life. And then my other thing that I think is always interesting that I give advice for people was, was interesting about being in a mastery place like West West Side is like all the producers used to still attend sessions. And so I'd see their coming up story. And I always find these coming up stories really interesting because you got to figure out a route. And so what I realized was very fast is I had a lot of stupid delusions that I thought you can't make a bad record, you can't work with a bad band or else you're cursed. And what I started to realize is like, what really actually impressed a lot of the bands and like when I turned to the band who'd come to the mastering session, like, why'd you work with this person? The funny hidden answer would be is like, oh, well, we saw this terrible band we played with, but he made them good. (laughs) And I was like, wow. And so a light bulb goes off in my head and I'm like, okay, so New Jersey's littered with bad bands that have a little bit of potential. So what I'd start doing is I'd grab the band that was working hard, that was playing a lot of shows, but were like, embarrassingly bad. Mm -hmm. And I'd sit in rehearsal with them and I'd teach them all the things I learned from the good bands I was around and all the things I knew. And we'd do pre-production forever. Just getting the drummer to not flam all his hits, to writing the songs better, to getting the guitarist to not bend the string when he frets it. Just all the, the little things that would help. And then we'd get in the studio and we'd make these records and eventually it became the thing. And it was very much the same thing with Steve in my generation is that every band that seemingly went to him started to do a lot better. And I became that guy when Steve had moved on to working with Ross in that generation. So I just got a ton, a ton, a ton of work, which led me to leave West West Side and be freelance and eventually want to come home from working with Ross because I was getting all these great offers and I wanted to take them for myself. You know, Ross was also my other favorite producer. So getting to work with him, especially on The Cure, was a dream. But I also created a demand and wanted to have that for myself. Why did you make the decision to go freelance? I mean, what was the major attraction to that in leaving Ross and Steve and and working at other people's places? So, you know, there's this like saying I learned years ago, and I tell this when I spot a lot of talented people doing things is... Everything you're punished for on the bottom, you're rewarded when you're on the top. The idea is that I knew from Alan teaching me this, that when I had an idea or something could be better, it was not my place because Alan is the big dog. And I'm not here for that. I'm here to hit rewind on the tape machine and do things. But I had all those ideas and I saw all the things, but it wasn't my place to do it. And 
when I was working with Ross, it would be the same thing. And it's, you know, let's also say this. Working with Ross and Steve is, Steve kind of played, downplayed it on his episode with you, but Steve is a genius producer and songwriter, and he was downplaying that, but he really has an abundance of ideas that he does not have the confidence to say. So having the three of us in a room is too many chefs. So I'd always keep my mouth shut, but I did not want to keep my mouth shut, and I wanted to express myself. And that's always been a thing for me is that what I hated about being in bands was I hated the reciting part. I wanted to be creative, develop things, and make things. So it just was not going to work for me being on the bottom. Were you scared to venture out on your own? Was there any kind of trepidation or concern of what was going to happen? Or did you have confidence that it was going to do well? You know, that's funny. When I was younger, I was way more fearless. Now I worry about everything (laughs) because I think I didn't have much to lose. Like all I had was audio equipment, a bed, and like a shitty TV. Growing up punk, I really was not a materialistic person. I don't have family. So the failure, it's like, oh, well, you sell gear when studios don't do well. And sure, you know, like during an economic downturn, I've sold gear before. It's that funny thing of, yeah, I had no concern. Whereas now, like, I'm about to move my recording studio and my apartment. I'm like, oh, God, what if this, what if that, what if this? And 43 is a lot different than 23. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, there's the other thing, too, that I tell people when you're growing and things are going well. Like, right now, my engineer, Brian DeMeglio, he just did this record that's blowing up for Pitchfork in one of the conversations we had is I'm like, yeah, when things are blowing up, you are due, but you don't want to run away from the steadiness too fast because I always think of that Steve Albini story about in utero how no one was asking him to work. You want to have too much business and be saying no to things and figuring out how to do it and have to stay up all night. It's better to have to stay up all night to make your deadlines than to be wondering a little bit. And I had hit that point where I was working with Ross and Steve. I was doing 14-hour days. I'd still have to do mix changes on things I'd been mixing after hours Hmm. all the time. So you venture forward, and how does it go? Like the first year or two, what was that like? Leaving the nest, we'll call it. What was interesting is, is while I was working for Alan, I had kind of left the nest a little, and I was doing freelance stuff, and I was having to work through the weekends, work the nights, the hours I wasn't there. That goes well. When I'm leave there. There's this patch where I'm working for Ross and Steve, but I'm also freelancing. That's going well. I'm having tons of records that are doing well on MTV. I'm booked six, seven months out. And then I go on my own and it still goes amazing for a couple years. And then there's this weird thing that happens. And this leads to one of my two books eventually is that I mostly worked in the pop punk genre and I'm, let's call it my late 20s at this point. And The genre takes this really commercial, materialistic turn away from the thing I grew up with it, which was like kind of a rebellion, and I really did not empathize with it at all. I felt like the groups were more concerned with their hair than playing their instruments, and it felt like hair metal, which is what I rebelled against when I was a kid, and I started not putting my all. I didn't want to go to work. Mm. I didn't want to stay there for 16 hours. And frankly, I started drinking a lot. I was not happy with the job. And I started thinking about other things. This coincided exactly with the 2009 economic downturn. And the studio work really dried up. I was Mm. kind of shocked at how much it did because I never had experienced something like that before. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, the one other thing about me is I devour information and 
musicians always asked me how to promote their music afterwards. During that time, I had, let's call it managed, I'm putting very strong- Big air quotes, audience. Yeah, yes. I managed this band that was a DIY band, and we still managed to be one of the most played bands on MTVX, which was called The Escape Engine. And we did this by mobilizing the crowd. And I did a lot of the strategy behind this. I'd produced the record that I came up with ideas. And I should say my father was an advertising executive who made me watch commercials and discuss marketing and advertising every day since I was like Ted. So this just came naturally to me. So all these bands would say, what do I do to promote myself? And I had tons of ideas. I'd been paying attention. I watched all the things. It just was something I did. And then when I got less busy, I was like, what if I just start making a blog? Blogs are popular. And so I made a blog about everything I was interested in, whether it was recording techniques, which sampler animal collectives using on their record, and music promotion tips. But the music promotion tips, if I clicked my analytics, it was like, oh, this is 20 times more popular than everything else because no one's saying real tips. I mean, there was tons of books that said this stuff, but they weren't saying real information that actually worked, whereas I was researching the real information that worked. So I took that as a hint that maybe this is something to do with your spare time. And these bands kept asking me to manage them. So I said yes to two of them, and both of them got very big. One's name is Man Overboard, the other's Transit. And they also fixed that other part of my story, which was that they were that anti-materialistic, really about the songs, hardworking. The one band wrote 90 songs in 18 months that were high-quality songs, just worked all night and day. What I would always say is there was never an hour of the day for two years that somebody wasn't working on this bad amongst us. And things went really well, and they really blew up, and then it became a time to choose between me managing or producing, and then all of a sudden, producing's going really well again, and I went, mm, I choose producing. You know, coming from that background of, of kind of a, of a DIY punk ethic, mm -hmm. how did you come to an agreement on how you were to be compensated on the management aspects of what you were doing for these folks? So that is always the messiest thing. And I should say, like, even right now, I manage three bands I produce, and they're all legacy groups, so they're not very active. But there's times that it's like, yes, I am producing or I'm remastering the record. And they're like, well, why don't you just take it after the royalties come in? You just take your pay. And it's like, oh, we got to keep this church and state. <laughs> Like, we got we got to pretend I am not the person. This is Jesse Cannon part two is doing this thing, and these got to be two jobs, and you have to pay me just the way somebody else pays me. Yeah. And I recognize that. I mean, I also had to recognize it because, frankly, when that first started, when that economic downturn happened, I made rent in everything by dollars a month. I have a picture that I keep meaning to find and publish, but I've usually done well. It's like I was sleeping on a futon and eating a dollar fifty lunch each day because after renting all the bills, there was nothing left to give for a while. 2009 was rough. Yeah. So like if they didn't pay, there was no waiting around. If they didn't pay, the studio wasn't going to exist the next time we meant to make a record. Wow. I mean, New York rent is not fun. You came to a crossroads and got back into producing because that started to pick up again? With the bands being successful, all those bands brought me tons of new work that I was actually enthused about again. Hmm. So what I did then is in my spare time, I kept doing the blog and I wrote a book about all the techniques we used to get those bands big because I didn't want to manage bands anymore. And I should say this, while I do manage bands again, I don't manage any bands that are trying to break because that's the most brutal job up to producing a record you really care about. 
that's the most brutal job I can think of is trying to break a band from zero to 100,000 fans. It pays bad. It's stressful. And you're thinking about it every hour of every day and everyone around you hates you for it. Is the book that you're referring to, is that the Get More Fans book? Yes. So Get More Fans ended up becoming a book I wrote about what we did to build the band up and all the philosophies people need to know. It's now in its eighth edition. It's taught at over a dozen universities. And it's also, I have a YouTube channel where I discuss the modern techniques because the information moves so fast that even though I update it every year, you have to just always be changing this information constantly. So the YouTube channel is like a year old and I already have to redo some of the videos every couple months because what you're telling somebody all of a sudden is obsolete. So the Get More Fans book is much more about larger theories on how you build up a fan base, whereas my YouTube channel is like, well, Spotify just allowed you to do this new thing this week. Mm, more up to date, more more timely. Yes. But that allowed me so I could give that knowledge to everybody and not have to manage bands because, As of this date that we're talking, you continue to manage some bands, correct? I continue to manage bands. I still produce, engineer, and master. But I guess so. since I know the themes of this podcast, I'll continue on with, uh, <laughs> <laughs> without prompt. So yet again, I get disillusioned with producing. We're getting near 20 years into doing this 300 days a year for me. Yeah. At this point, about six years ago, I've just been doing this long and I'm like, I don't know what well to tap anymore. So I coincidentally read a book called Where Good Ideas Come From, from Stephen Berlin Johnson. That's my favorite book of all time. And that book talks about the creativity of science and how it actually applies to making good creations. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's something about this for music. And then I see there's no real book that just focuses on music creativity. I find Michael Beinhorn's book, which I love, mm, yeah. but it's more broad. It's not just about music. So I keep reading every book, and I eventually read like 200 books on creativity. I realize no one's ever written this book about how to go deeper in creativity in music. So I spent four years writing that book and researching it, and it gets me so much more passionate about producing again because I find this whole new level of what to tap and things I've learned and realizations I've had, and I learn what the music's about, and it just makes everything really clear to me and makes it so that I can focus the right work with artists. And it's funny because so much of the book is things Ross Robinson was doing that I was observing, but I didn't get it as big a picture until I read this. And this book, just for the audience, that's called Process and Creativity? Yes. And so that book does very well. What it opens me up for is a lot of people then start coming to me to talk to me about their creative problems. Mm. And I really enjoy that. When people are stuck on things, things like that, I now get to have conversations like that. But it was yet again that thing that I've heard talked about odd here is that, you know, you hit these walls where it's like, how do you challenge yourself again? And that was how I challenged myself as I learned all of that science. And then yet again, just like the management thing, though, I was like, more people should hear this. And that's what I put the book out for. Let me ask an intrusive question. Financially speaking, were you getting royalties from the records you had produced? For somebody who handles other people's business, I did such a bad job getting some of those royalties. There's Definitely a lot of records that do me very well, mm -hmm. but I should have pursued it more with them. I did that stupid thing that we all do, which is like, oh, it's the friends. Oh, it'll be fine. I mean, even just saying this right now, I'm like, oh, I should check on that royalty check. I didn't do that for two years. Yeah. 
it's so dumb. But yeah, I did not do it. And I had a few managers. I don't want to do a thing that all managers are bad, but I do have a theory that where a lot of people who know they're going to make easy money, be lazy, go is to producer management because it's the easiest money possible. And they do a terrible job and I could do better, but I also failed my own self. It's a convenience because it takes that task away from you. Yes. And if you take it on yourself and think you could do it better, you possibly can, but you've also got to spend your time chasing down letters of direction and and all that business and sound exchange and... Oh, my God. I think that's one of the reasons why I just kind of gradually moved myself into mixing and mastering because it was just like, well, I don't have to deal with that. I just, you know, I'm like a plumber. Yep. And that really was it, too, is that I'd watch so many of my friends deal with this and they'd be like complaining. They're like, oh, my God, we're on these extra days. I'm like, I don't know. I just charge for a day every time. There was years of my life I could count the hours I wasn't paid for that I didn't bill for maybe on each of my toes and fingers because I would charge for every hour certain years. I just wouldn't be good about pursuing the points when I was even clearly entitled to songwriting royalties. I sometimes wouldn't chase that down because I wanted to be the good guy and I wanted to be the friend. And then you see that massive, massive streams. And it's so easy to quantify this stuff. And yeah, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> I'd love that money now. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You've really diversified a bit though too because mm -hmm. as we were prepping for our interview here, we you had offhandedly mentioned political podcasts. Can you talk about your diversification activities? Funny enough, when I was writing about the music business, a friend of mine who had a blog wrote me at some point. And we were both always talking about which podcasts we were listening to. And he's like, let's do a music business podcast where we just talk. 
And I'm like, sure, an hour a week I could do that. I'll have the assistant edit it. And then all of a sudden it got super, super big. And so I should say this friend was 19. I'm pushing probably mid-30s at that point. I'm like, whatever, it'll be fine. This is my friend who's a young kid who's really smart. It's going to be whatever. And then all of a sudden we're on the cover of iTunes and all this crazy stuff starts happening with it. And no one was really doing a let's talk about, it was before Spotify even launched in America, but we'd be like talking about what's going to happen with that and things like that. And it did really well. And then people would just start talking to me about podcasts all the time. So funny enough, this friend, his name is Zach Cirillo, then gets a job managing this band brand new. Brand new for people who don't know. A couple of years ago, he managed their campaign and they are the only DIY group with a label they run themselves to have a debut number one album on the entire charts. And that was at Zach's helm. He did that at like 22 years old. This kid was a genius. I met him at 15. And so people took to him and I talking. So, but from there, I got lots of cool podcast asks. I started to do these documentaries where bands would ask me to make a podcast around their record and just all the things because I was the guy who was doing the podcast. I knew how to do it. And then I got a call from Atlantic Records saying, can you make us some podcasts? And I made for two and a half years a ton, like 60 something podcasts for them of different things. And it was really fun. I did my own, which was this thing called Inside the Album, where I would do these documentaries on the real creative process. I should say Atlantic gave me unprecedented access. They would answer questions. I could literally be them like, so is this artist just like a pawn? Are you shaping their songs? What actually happens? And they would give me the realest answers. Like all the podcast has, what the label is really doing with no bullshit. Wow. Yeah. And it was really cool. They really wanted to show their DNA and it was a cool project. But right as COVID hit, my boss got phased out there, moved to another job, and they took the department down because they had no one to run it right when COVID hit, Hmm. which is funny because so many people leaned into podcasts. But I got very lucky, you know, when we talk about the lessons of things. So, like, I have always been good with keeping that phone book in my phone. And when I got laid off at Atlantic, I was like, woof, well, this is a lot of money a month. This is a little worrisome. There's this pandemic and I can't run my studio and produce bands anymore. So my studio is in a house with a 90-year-old woman in Brooklyn. Oh, she's like, <laughs> she like the studio manager? <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I was pretty worried. So I just put a lot of texts like, hey, anybody know anything? Da, 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 da. I was hoping mastering and book sales would get me through. But three days later, my drummer of my old punk band, who's one of my best friends, messages me. He says, hey, the Daily Beast is looking for somebody to do some podcast stuff with. So the funny thing is that the Daily Beast, the head of it is a guy named Noah Shackman. And Noah was in this band called the Stubborn All-Stars and King Django before he was the editor of one of the biggest news organizations in the world. And I had recorded him. So I do the interview and he knew that in 1999, when I recorded him, I was a very responsible person and I knew my stuff. And the interview did not last very long because he knew I could handle it. So the funny thing is, is we develop our first of the podcasts and it goes to number three of all podcasts the first week where do it. No kidding. Yeah. And I should say this. Some of that is that we worked really hard to develop it. We taped countless episodes before the first whatever aired. We did all the right things to think about it and develop it. And some of it is also that my hosts are absolute political superstars of knowing real information that no one else is talking about. 
which makes for good podcasting. Yeah. Well, it's also a broader topic. It's not such a niche thing. I mean, working class audio is such a niche thing that yes. you're going to have only so many people listen, even within the industry that it's in. But something like politics or cooking or money or business, that's going to go wider. Yeah, it, it really is insane when you look at those numbers is that the biggest, I have this thing to take it back to music all the time, that when you look at the biggest music groups now that are like rock music, they're the size of a mid-level, like the bad on an electronic fest or the artist on an electronic festival that's in the smallest font. That's like Foo Fighters because <laughs> EDM is just so much bigger now worldwide. It's the same thing. It's like the biggest music podcast they're literally barely a drip in the water of some guy who's just talking about how angry he is that paper straws are there and the liberals are terrible. And, and he talks about that five days a week. You will be 10 times bigger than the biggest music podcast. Your diversification activities, while they're different income streams and they, they kind of keep you afloat, you still have your hand in management and production and mm -hmm. mixing and mastering and doing podcasts we're not too dissimilar, really, yes. in what we do. Are you surviving? Yeah, I have to work a lot of hours a week. And like when I say that, I mean, I wake up at eight and go to bed at two. And oftentimes I've not been away from my desk for more than 10 minutes in a day. There's no chat on. There's no bullshit. Like I have to make content. I have to answer emails. I have to do things. But it's good. And I love being challenged. Now, the one thing I will say is, does it get bad? Was I a zombie around the election. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, this is very fun. It's a good time. It's since we can't leave our houses. It works for now. But when we're all vaccinated, will I have to rethink some of the overly burdens I've given to myself this time? Absolutely. Let me ask you this. When you're interviewing to do the podcast for the Daily Beast, for example, are there any issues of identity that you have to contend with with yourself as far as like, wow, you know, I mean, I used to work on these records and that time period, you know, I was going to be this. Do you feel deflated at all or do you feel a sense of conflict? This is such a good question because I will fully admit that I am somebody who prides myself on my identity and things like that. But it's the funny thing that the only other thing I've ever been interested in aside from music is politics. I've been all my life, a lot of the things I've done outside music have been politics. So this felt very seamless, but had it been something else, like let's say I had been recruited into, I could never do sports. I don't know anything about sports. And yeah, I've made very big decisions based on my identity and that I want to feel that way. When I was younger, I felt like a record producer was a really prestigious thing. And the joke I used to make is I was dating this girl in 2003, and she'd tell all her friends I was a record producer. They'd be like, ooh, how rich is he? And by 2005, they're like, do you guys, are you okay? Like, are you paying his rent? Because <laughs> <laughs> by then, there was just so many people who were doing garage band, and they'd met so many deadbeat musicians who were like, yeah, I'm a producer. And they met him on a dating app, and they got back to their house, and it was not really a house. <laughs> I'm starting to realize, and I know I'm a little late to this realization, that just like in life with the haves and the have-nots, mm -hmm. it's like that in, in all industries, too. And the music industry, in terms of audio professionals, there's the one percenters. Yes. And there's the rest of us. After watching the documentary of David Foster, I mean, you realize that someone like that who not only gets their 
production royalties, but their songwriting royalties on such huge hits, massive hits, worldwide mm-hmm. hits. That puts you in a class in the 1%, essentially. Mm-hmm. So those of us who are not in that area who have to go and hustle different gigs and diversify, you know, it's just, it's a different story. It's a different outlook on things. That's why I ask you about the identity thing. It's like we aspire, I'm sure, to be the name in, in lights or the name that is constantly at the big things, at mix with the masters, at, you know, yeah, on I, all I, I, the different things out there. And when you're not, it can be challenging to the to the mind, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I will tell you, it's funny. I've had maybe three panic attacks in my life. And two of them were when I realized I wasn't going to be as big a producer as Ross Robinson. Yeah. I grew up wanting to be that. And when it hit me, it wasn't happening. It was like I had one finger on nine, one on one phone. And on the other phone, I'm calling my mother saying, I think I'm having a heart attack because she knows a lot about medical stuff. And she's like, it's a panic attack. You're 27. <laughs> Calm the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is that thing. I think the other thing, too, is, is that got me open to being a different identity. And the thing I realized that was very interesting is, is not to get too Freud, but I joke with my father that he's very lucky. He got to basically carbon copy clone himself aside from an interest in football. And my father was really into marketing. He managed bands, nothing very successful, but he tried his hand at it. He's really into music and really into politics. And that's basically what I've been into. And when I was young, I wanted to write a book. My father wrote a book. I wanted to own a restaurant and own a club, and I did the club thing. I don't think it's smart to do the restaurant thing, but we'll see if that happens at some point. And I wanted to be a record producer, and I've done all those things, and it feels like, you know, that was a dream since I was 12, and it feels good and cool, and it feels like I've been on the track. I did not know I'd be so into YouTube, though at 38, getting really hard into YouTube was a different twist. The conclusion I have reached, because I've Mm -hmm. gone through the same identity thing too, and what I've come to the conclusion of is my ultimate goal is freedom, is the freedom Mm. to wake up and go, what do I want to work on? Emails are coming in for this project or phones ringing for that project. That's, I think, my ultimate goal. It's not necessarily any, any type of fame. It's more centered around the ability to just not have to answer to anybody and to live life in the fullest in that way. Now I know that now you don't have a you don't have a family, right? No kids. I do not. Okay. At the ripe young age of fifty one, I'm like, okay, <laughs> what's the end game here, man? What's yeah, what's yeah. gonna happen? And the end game, I think, as I've just said, is freedom. It's the ability mm-hmm. to operate independently as best I can. So most of my decision making now drives to that end, as long as I can continue on in audio, because it's just such an attraction. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've had a similar conclusion as the freedom thing, and it's funny because this Daily Beast podcast has made it so I don't have as much freedom, but I love it. And that is the most unexpected thing of my life in recent times. So before this, I would do anything I could to never book a thing where I would speak to a single human before noon. (laughs) I'm a very not good morning person. I come from a family where we grunt at each other in the morning Mm -hmm. because none of us are good communicators until we've woken up and had some coffee. And now I wake up at 9 a.m. and I have to talk to senators and ask them really challenging questions. And I'm in charge of helping write the questions. I sometimes ask them live on air and I have to be 
one booked at hours I don't like, and two, two to three days a week, I have to be willing to shift my schedule any way to accommodate a good guest we get. And I've lost that freedom, but it's funny because maybe three days I've really regretted it. And that may change with COVID when there's things going on again and like places I want to travel. But it's been funny because I worked so hard to have freedom and then I've made the sacrifice to not have it. And I've been pretty good with it, actually. I'm shocked. How do you prioritize your time now? So if a band calls you up and they want to, let's say, in a COVID-safe environment, we'll, we'll just yeah. preface that. How do you manage that if you got to go and deal with the band and do what you need to do to produce a record, but still you have this responsibility for your YouTube channel and the other things you've created and the podcast and Daily Beast, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the Daily Beast kind of begets it having to be priority one. So when I produce bands now, I do it on the weekend since I very rarely have to do anything for the Daily Beast Friday through Sunday. Mm. It's very rare that I'm going to do more than 20 minutes of just dealing with something. Mm -hmm. So I've basically become that producer who can work on the weekends, which was never me. I would work any day for literally until COVID hit. And I've had to do that. Like I just did, I had two really classic bands reach out to me that I'm like, okay, well, these are groups that I grew up listening to. I'm not going to say no to this. And it's like that thing of, I'm like, all right, well, we got to make this happen. But I'm also really lucky that, so I have two different people who assist me and they both cover my ass really well. And the other thing is, is even now I'm getting even busier every month. I'm like, all right, well, now I have to get somebody else to cover some of the other things for me because I just can't. When I watch that to-do list get longer instead of shorter each week, that's enough to give me a heart attack. Well, and so you're in control of the to-do list. Yes. Do you think you overpopulate the to-do list to your own detriment? You know, there's this funny thing that my brain has. I call it reactive and proactive, is that I get very not proactive when... I have too much going on, which I don't like because then I don't work on new projects. Like I have a thing I'm doing with my friend Finn McKenty that I'm really excited about where we're going to work on a more thorough way for musicians to understand how to promote themselves and a more actionable thing. And I want to work on it. But when I have all the things I'm going to get in trouble for if I don't do, and I fear that email going, Jesse, it's been eight days. You said you'd have a mix for us in five. That email kills me. So my brain doesn't get proactive until I've cleared all the reactive stuff off of it. And it really is even the thing like, because my YouTube channel, I have to upload every week. And I ha that means I have to write a video that is no one has said the thoughts before on how to market your music. And it has to be an original idea. I'm not cribbing it from anywhere. It's something I came up with. It's a mandate I have. And I literally can't bring myself to do it. And usually I upload on Monday and we're taping on a Wednesday. I haven't done it yet because my brain's not clear enough to get the thoughts out that I have. Because when we get off of here, I have two records to master and a podcast edit to do. And my brain's just not clear. These things we create for ourselves, the work that we mm -hmm. create for ourselves, I've been there on a Thursday or Friday without an interview ready to go, and I realize, oh, crap, I got to <laughs> get the podcast out by next Monday, and I need a guest. Crap. Yeah. It's an interesting conundrum. Well, so talk to me just briefly about if there are other audio professionals out there who want to dive into the world of podcasting, and, and they've been in music. I'll, I'll preface mm -hmm. it by that. Let's say that they've been in music where they're out of work from doing live sound and they're like, well, I'm going to get into podcasting because there's some possibilities for 
work there. What's your advice? What are your thoughts on on this world of podcasting as it stands today? I think there's still a lot of, we're at that period. And it's funny, like you were giving me the rundown I give to other people about. It's funny, I can't listen to podcasts that are badly edited. And as I said, I've listened to this. I know you do a really concise edit job. So one of the first things is that I'm a writer. So when I listen to people speak on a podcast, I'm going to get rid of all the superfluous things. I'm going to get rid of what we call throat clearing. I'm going to get rid of diversions, things like that. Learning how to edit people so that they sound really good helps get you noticed. And not everybody's going to notice it. It's a thing that the people who matter, like just as when we make a prog rock record, 2% of the people are going to notice the tiny intonations if they're off and they're going to email you. You know, the sax was a little pitchy, right? In that one pat- patch. It's like, yeah, okay. All right, buddy. Like you're at that yeah. 0.0002%. But those people who do notice that are usually the people who are hiring for that. The other thing I will say is, is learning what makes good content and how to get there is so much of the production. Just learning what streamlines a song to be listenable. I know you, because I've heard your evolution of it, is if you've gotten better at asking questions and which ways to go with people over the years. And I learn every day and I write down lessons learned in a document and I reread them every month of like, oh, when you were asking about Joe Biden's policy for this, people really don't like when you phrase it that way. Make sure you phrase it this way instead and just get better and and pay attention and learn just the same way we learn how a song works better. You got to learn what works well. And then you have to get good at just as we police the performances. I spent years telling people that they're fretting their guitar bad, even though I can't play guitar properly. I now tell hosts, even though they're, I mean, my hosts are brilliant people, but I'm like, hey, this does not make sense what you're saying here right now. You're not describing this in a way that any humans could understand outside of the four people who've read some political science book. Yeah. Do you think some people in that sphere of podcasts try to be too clever and too educated? Just like good writing, like when you read that William Zisner stuff, talking in a language that people can understand always goes way further than rarefied language. If you naturally use some big words here and there, I mean, I think, you know, I just said rarefied. Not everybody hears that every day, but it's like a word I use all day. And it's not the most common, but that works when it's common to you. It does not work. That's not currency for being smart. What's currency for being smart is telling people things they haven't realized before in a way that they could actually realize them. Case in point, Steve Albini. Uh (laughs) Word I learned from Steve Albini Simulacrum, I believe, is the is the term. <laughs> it's just so funny because I've heard him say it before and looked. I listen to any Steve Albini interview he does. Like I don't care what podcast, I'll just like okay, there's an Albini interview, let's do it. And I've heard him say that before. Yeah, two words he uses: simulacrum and pro forma. I don't know what pro forma means. Let's let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> pro forma definition. Okay, for the sake of form, as a matter of form. Ah. That's a smart person word. Yeah. Pro forma and simulacrum. When I heard him say simulacrum, I was like, what the <laughs> is that? <laughs> I had to look it up. But but Steve is effortlessly smart. And when you hear him say it, you don't see pretension. You see a man who is just so with it. It's amazing. Even oh. though I have heard he's very addicted to playing the words with friends. He's sincere. I believe mm-hmm. that he believes everything he says with great sincerity I may not agree with all of his methods or approaches, 
but I certainly can respect him. There's a, actually like a link I keep of when people criticize his not producing thing. He did this interview with Vishkana about that at one point. I send it to people on a regular basis because he explains so eloquently why he doesn't do it. And it's like so respectable, even though it's totally the opposite of how I produce. Yeah, absolutely. I have a host of links I'm going to have to include in the show notes audience <laughs> for God. Jesse, what? You've got books, you've got your YouTube channel, podcasts you've worked on, all this stuff. I'm looking at your email footer <laughs> because it's it's got it all in there. So I'm going to include that audience and there's lots for you to dig into. And I'm, I'm really happy that you came on the show, Jesse, because I feel I have a new friend that I can really learn from. So what's next for you? First off, I really appreciate that as somebody who's listened to this forever. It's really good to actually chat. It's always fun when you talk to somebody you've heard in your ears for a long time. What's next for me? When we get vaccinated, I want to, one, travel again. <laughs> I well, The best thing about doing podcasts is you can do them from anywhere, which is a very nice thing. I've, I've run a recording studio, my own studio, for 21 years, and I've never been able to really be out of New York for very long, aside from when I worked for Ross. So I want to take advantage of this new part of the career, even though I have to move a studio. And that's what's also next for me is, I was in a studio space for 13 years, then we moved to one for two years, and then the building just sold. And so now we're moving to a bigger and better location, but it's still moving a studio, which we all know from listening to this podcast is one of the worst things you can do to yourself. Just so I'm clear, you are in New York? I'm in Brooklyn, New York, yeah. You're in Brooklyn. Okay. And the studio is located where? In the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn, and we were in Union City, New Jersey, which is right outside Midtown for 13 years. So I used to do the reverse commute, but now we're going to be somewhere else in Brooklyn. Is the studio called the Cannon Found Foundation, or is that... We call it Found Foundation now, so that it's a little less focused around me since um, other people do great work there, and we don't want it all being about me. Foundation. See, that could be added to Simulacrum and Proforma. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. My thanks to you for coming on the show and also thanks to Steve Evitz for having the foresight to send an email and connect us really quickly and get you on here. And just also a thank you to you for listening for so many years. I can't listen to myself. Well, you know, that's part of the sociopath test is if you like the sound of your own voice that you've already failed one of them. So you're doing good. Once again, great to meet you. And you as well. uh, we will certainly stay in touch. So thank you again. Yeah, please do. We'll love to keep chatting, man. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jesse Cannon here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there with his beautiful voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and as usual, take care. 
Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 